Welcome to Witness to Yesterday, the podcast of the Champlain Society. My name is Patrice Dutille, and I'm talking from the Allen Slate Radio Institute at Ryerson University in downtown Toronto. It's been a while since we've talked about the Communist Party of Canada, and Tyler Wenzel, my guest today, has taken a new plunge into that story, and I hope he makes quite a splash. There was a time in Canadian history writing when the radical left inspired considerable effort. Certainly, until about 30 years ago, there were far more books about the Canadian Communist Party than there were about the liberal or the conservative-slash-progressive-conservative party. That interest died down as the Soviet Union fell apart, and the most romantic element of Canadian politics lost its magnets. Tyler Wenzel found a new vein to mine in the communist past. It's Edward Cecil Smith, an active member of the CPC, the Communist Party of Canada, who did far more than most in risking his life during the Spanish Civil War. Mr. Wenzel is the author of Not for King or Country, Edward Cecil Smith, The Communist Party of Canada and the Spanish Civil War. It is published by the University of Toronto Press. Tyler Wenzel, welcome to the studio. Thank you, Patrice. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, you're the witness to yesterday. Tell me what happened on August 1st, 1929 at Queen's Park in Toronto. It was International Red Day. Not a holiday, not a celebration that most people today would be familiar with. It certainly seems strange to us today, but at the time, in the 1920s and the 1930s, members of the Communist Party of Canada and fellow travelers saw the Soviet Union as an agent for peace. The logic was that the capitalists and imperialists had gotten the world into the Great War, so a country that was supposed to be run by the workers was thought to be the force that would prevent such a thing from happening again. We know a bit better today, but at the time, that was that was the story that was believed. So what were people doing at Queen's Park? So on International Red Day, August 1st, they would go to Queen's Park, they would have a picnic. There would be speakers that would come up to the gazebo and give speeches about the agent for peace that was the Soviet Union and international solidarity and the importance of international communism. Uh, and that had been done for a number of years. Uh, there were 10,000 people at Queen's Park on that particular August 1st. It was a, normally a peaceful thing? Completely peaceful. There was no violence. There was no calls to violence. It, it was a peace rally. Uh, the violence did come on this particular date uh, because there was a new chief constable for the city of Toronto, Denis Draper, brigadier from the Canadian Expeditionary Force during the Great War, and he was extremely anti-communist, and he had decided that this rally would not take place. So what did he do? He took the, the Red Squad, which was a group of police officers who were specially tasked to deal with troublesome communists, and tasked the mounted unit police officers on motorcycles, and they moved in to disperse the rally at the point in time when the speakers were moving up to the gazebo. It was violent. It was referred to as the Battle of Queen's Park. There was a special witness to that event, and that's your the key character in your book, Edward Cecil Smith. Who yes. is this man? Edward Cecil Smith, on that day, he was the uh, police reporter for the Mail and Empire. And uh, he, was, uh, he was a lot of things. He was uh, the son of missionaries in China. He was a practicing high Anglican, a believer in social gospel, and for most of his life, a really active member of the Communist Party of Canada. He was a banker, briefly, a journalist, an editor, a playwright. He was also a labor organizer and a soldier. In fact, he wore a uniform four different times in his career, once as a militiaman in Shanghai, another time as a... Canadian militiaman in uh, peacetime. He was the regimental sergeant major of the infantry school here in Toronto. 
He was a battalion commander in the Spanish Republican Army for two years of combat, and he was a sapper in the Canadian Active Service Force in the early days of the Second World War. So you're, you're covering a lot of time here before and after uh, this 1929 event at Queen's Park. Um, let's go back to his, his youth. He's what we used to call a mish kid, uh, a, son, uh, a son of missionaries. He was born in China. He was born in China. He lived in China. He learned Chinese. His first language was Mandarin. Both of his parents were very active missionaries. His parents were not Canadian, were they? No, they were British. They were British, okay. Although his mom was born in Australia, but she did not grow up there. And they went to uh, Guiyang province in China. They were there during the Boxer Rebellion. uh, And they had their... They had one kid before the Boxer Rebellion and two kids after the Boxer Rebellion. Edward Cecil Smith was the youngest. When does he come to Canada and why? He came to Canada in 1919. Uh, he was um, 16, 16, 17 yeah. at the time. Mm-hmm. His sister went to study at the Toronto Bible College and went to nursing school. She was going to go back as a missionary. Mm. And we don't know what he did when he initially came here, but by the mid-1920s, he joined the militia. He was working as a banker. He worked at the Canadian Bank of Commerce. Uh, and he, he Kind was of a married. jack of all trades, really. Does not go to university. As far as we can tell, he did not go to university. The RCMP certainly thought he had gone to university, but there's there's no records of him being a full-time student at any point. He was a, an autodidact who just read a lot. A man who could read, a man, a man who could work with his hands, but also a man who could write. Absolutely. And as you say, he winds up, he's a reporter for the Maryland Empire at that, and he's witnessing the riot at Queen's Park. Is he a communist at that point? Is he already a communist? He's not a communist at that point. He uh, may have these ideas in his head, but he's not a member of the party. He is part of a, the Labour Party of Ontario at that time. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he doesn't join the Communist Party of Canada until 1931, after the Depression has set in. And uh, he and many other people have really lost faith in capitalism as an economic system. I mean, as the Depression rages, he's one of those whose beliefs seem to deepen. Absolutely. And he's an active member of the Communist Party all through the 1930s. Now, where do you place him in the spectrum of, of you know, the far, the spectrum of the left? Is he, is he far left? Is he, is he aligned with the Stalinist Tim Buck, for example? Or is he more of a Trotskyist? Where, where do you rank him uh, on that spectrum? He was definitely a, a dyed-in-the-wool Tim Buck adherent. He came into the party in 1931, which was after the, the main schisms, which saw the getting rid of um, the various uh, Finnish, Jewish, Ukrainian uh, labor and cultural organizations, the Trotskyists, the Lovestonites. Most of those people had been cast out by the time he came to the party. And he really did double down on the party line for the most part. Um, if you take in his readings throughout this period, there's glimpses of free thought, where he makes reference to um, Soviet thinkers that are persona non grata within the Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. People who are considered to be right oppositionists or left oppositionists, but he will quote them with authority when he agrees with them. So this is uh, kind of an unwise thing to do if you want to be considered a good member of the Communist Party of mm-hmm. Canada. Described, so he's, in, he's roughly in his mid-30s. Do they have, he's married? Tell us about it. Do you know much about his wife? His wife is a, a very interesting woman. Lillian Googe was her name. She came from a, a large working class family in Toronto. And she was the secretary at the China Inland Mission, where Edward Cecil Smith lived when he first came to Toronto. Uh, and he, he was very active with that organization. So it's not surprising that they, they met, fell in love. Like him, 
he had had the benefit of going to a fancy British boarding school in China. She was a complete autodidact. Uh, she also read voraciously, had a lot of opinions. Both were notoriously argumentative. It's not hard to see how they how they definitely got along. But in the late 1920s, early 1930s, I mean 1928 to until he actually joined the party, you would think that they were just a quote unquote ordinary Anglican married couple. Religious is he? He he was religious. He he was a, a church going man until well into his older years, which was unusual for members of the Communist Party of Canada. Rather, was, yes, <laughs> it was supposed to be a atheistic organization, mm-hmm. and there were certain faiths that were considered to be more conducive mm-hmm. to being a quote unquote good communist. High Anglican was not, not one, one of them. them. No, so a man of some contradictions there. A man of certain contradictions, yeah. yes. Now, the Spanish War, the Sp- war is, breaks out in Spain. It's a civil war. You have the monarchists on one side. You have the Republicans on the other. Edward Cecil Smith decides on something pretty radical. He's going to go fight. Can you tell us about that decision? That was definitely the origin of this research in the first mm-hmm. place, was wondering why would someone want to do that. There is no social pressure. There was no one handing out white feathers to people who weren't going. Canada was not involved. Canada had no involvement. There was not um, anything resembling a Spanish community in Canada. Um, This was largely a politically motivating um, kind of war. I think for him, there were a lot of things that pulled him into it. One was just generally a sense of purpose. He had trained as a soldier, a peacetime militiaman, granted, but he had trained as a soldier and he'd never, he'd never used that skill set. He'd never set. been on a battlefield. He had never been on a battlefield. He'd never had that experience. But he was also, here's one of those, another one of those contradictions. He, he was a pacifist. He has <laughs> a number of writings speaking about, speaking out against war, but certain kinds of war, imperialist war. So he saw the Great War, the First World War, as being this terrible suicide of Western civilization. And he saw the Spanish Civil War as potentially its redemption. And there's a whole international community that joins into that, isn't it? I mean, there, there are recruits in France and Britain and in the United States. All sorts of people are motivated to come to the help of the Republicans. They're facing Francisco Franco, the ones who are defending the, the monarchy. Um, it seems as though a lot of people thought this was the, the future was being decided here. You had the fascists supporting the monarchists, the, the, the Nazis. Absolutely. This, this war was an opportunity for many people to do something tangible to fight fascism. And in Canada, there's a, a battalion that's formed, the, the Mackenzie Pepineau uh, Battalion. Yes. Um, is that formed here or is that formed abroad? Well, how does that tell, tell us a story about that? Well, there's, that's, that's a very interesting and important question that hasn't really been addressed in much of the pre-existing literature on this. And that's largely because the Communist Party of Canada did a very good job of the propaganda on this point. So the term MACPAP, Yes, the MacPaps, yes. The Mackenzie Papineau Battalion can really mean two things. One, a MacPap is any Canadian volunteer who went to Spain. Two, there was an actual battalion that formed in Spain, uh, but it was not 100% Canadian. It wasn't 75% Canadian. It was probably at no point 50% plus one Canadian. Uh, And the reality was that these battalions had a lot of Spaniards in them who had no idea who Mackenzie or Papineau were. <laughs> no idea who Mackenzie or Papineau were. 
Um, we had a lot of Canadians in the Lincoln Battalion, the American unit, and the George Washington Battalion, which only existed a short time. And Those are all part of the International Brigade. All right? part of the International yeah. Brigades. So there was one brigade called the 15th Brigade that had a Spanish battalion, a British battalion, an American battalion, and a Canadian battalion. But Canadians were scattered all over the place. Um, and we had a large proportion of Canadian volunteers who were immigrants. Their first language was Hungarian, was Ukrainian, was Polish, was Finnish. And they were just as likely to end up in the Polish, Ukrainian, or otherwise battalion. However, that version of the facts, it wasn't useful for propaganda purposes. So the story that the party spun was that the Canadians, the MacPaps, were a cohesive body that were fighting together. So you almost run with these two stories, one of all Canadians acting as one, even though they weren't, and the other of a actual formed battalion that fought in Spain as a unit. And my study is really about that battalion and Cecil mm. Smith's command of it. But okay, Cecil Smith is a Toronto guy, mid-30s, and he decides he's going to go fight in Spain. And what does he discover there? What's the state of the brigade? There's a, a few dimensions to that. One is simply uh, this sense of beautiful solidarity that was felt. For instance, uh, when when these uh, communists gathered at Queen's Park on International Red Day in 1929, mm. one of the songs they would sing was the Internationale. Yes. And the Internationale was both the national anthem of the Soviet Union, but also the anthem of the communist movement at large. And it was sung in all different languages. There was a Hungarian version, a Finnish version, a Yiddish version, etc. So this was a song that regardless of what language you spoke, you could sing together and everyone knew it. Immediately upon arriving, you had this shared culture, this shared cause, despite being so different in so many ways. But in terms as a military organization, the international brigades, and bearing in mind this was an airplane built in mid-flight, yes. they were fighting the nationalists a formed army with decades of experience. And against that, you are throwing mostly untrained Spanish conscripts and international volunteers who may or may not have any previous military experience. So it was cobbled together. It is incredible that they were able to achieve anything at all. But Cecil Smith, even with his uh, limited militia background, was very struck with how undisciplined it was as an organization and he worked really hard to bring what he saw as being the correct level of discipline to his command he's injured he is injured so in his first battle he recovers you have a nice picture in the book about him recovering um and lo and behold he takes command of the mac paps in november of 1937 that's right so he begins his career in the george washington battalion he fights at the battle of brunetti he's wounded on the first day of the battle he recovers uh, and he's brought in as a reinforcement for the newly formed Mackenzie Papineau Battalion in its first battle at Fuentes de Ebro in October. He has almost no leadership experience, right? He has commanded one company once on one day, and now he's a battalion commander. This is not something he's trained for. This is not something he has a lot of knowledge in, but he's one of the few people that's willing to take that on. So he, he does, and he does the best he can with it. But it's not a successful fight. I mean, the they're in retreat almost from the get-go. Almost from the get-go. Their initial battles, Cecil Smith commanded in one defensive action, which went, which was successful, but led, there were very high casualties at the Battle of Teruel. And ultimately, the Republicans had to give up Teruel to the Nationalists yet again. 
and they he leads one successful raid at the uh, nationalist hill fort at Atalaya. But after that, it's Franco's Aragon offensive, which completely decimates what remains of the international brigades. So that terrible year of 1938 uh, is going to have an enormous toll on the Mackenzie Papineau Battalion. Uh, it's estimated that 1,500 people will have participated in the fight, and the casualty level is extremely high. What is it? Nearly 50% of the Canadians who went to Spain were were killed or, or seriously wounded. The Mackenzie Papineau Battalion itself was nearly 100% depleted on a few occasions. It was, it was refilled with newly arrived recruits and Spanish conscripts several times over. Uh, it, on some occasions, it ended a battle with 50 people standing. Absolutely terrible casualties. What happens to Edward Cecil Smith at that point? What are called the retreats, the Republican um, retreats in the face of the Franco's Aragon Offensive, uh, it's basically divided into two parts. And Cecil Smith commanded the battalion during the the first half, uh, during which time he was involved in a couple of defensive actions and the battalion was pretty much obliterated and he was separated from the organization and he found his way back and fought in another battle. But halfway through the retreats, he and many others were evacuated just due to straight up exhaustion, just physical and mental exhaustion. And he was taken off the line, was given a bit of a break, and by the time he uh, returned to the organization, the the entire International Brigade had been fought to the eastern side of the Ebro River. So he comes home? He's given the opportunity to go home. He could have gone home. He received a letter from uh, Tim Buck, the, the leader of the Communist Party of Canada, and this really shows the state of communications between the, sol- the volunteers in Spain and the Communist Party back in Canada. Tim Buck requested two communists by name to come back to Canada. Nilo Makala, who no one, not no one, but no one who was in charge knew had been killed during the retreats, and they spent a lot of time looking for him in the hospitals. And Ed Cecil Smith, who had been taken to a hospital, had recovered, taken command of the battalion again, he could have gone home. He was given the opportunity to go home, and he said, no, I would like to command my battalion at least one more time. There's a, there's a chance that we might be able to still win this. So he stayed, and he commanded the battalion uh, during the crossing of the Ebro River and a few battles afterwards, and he didn't leave until the entire international brigades were disbanded and sent home. I have to ask, I mean, everybody, when, when you think of Canada and you think of the um, Spanish Civil War, you think of Norman Bethune. <laughs> I have to ask, did they ever meet? This is where Norman Bethune really started applying this, the, the, the field medicine, uh, the transfusion uh, system that uh, made his reputation in China. But it was really, it was really developed uh, in the Spanish Civil War. Did they ever meet? Absolutely. They did not meet in Spain. They were in different places at different times. However, they knew each other from the communist movement back in Canada. Uh, Lillian Googe, Edward Cecil Smith's wife, had in fact contracted tuberculosis. He, she contracted tuberculosis from living in poor housing, poor, mm. cold, wet housing. This was a pretty normal thing to happen to poor people during the Depression. Where do you go when you have tuberculosis and you require surgery? Well, Norman Bethune in Montreal was the foremost surgeon in that, and he had recently returned from the Soviet Union, where he had fallen in love with the Soviet approach to healthcare, mm-hmm. uh, many other policies as they were practiced in the Soviet Union, and he had secretly joined the Communist Party of Canada. So he would have met her as a patient. 
would have met her as a patient. And in the course of that relationship, it seems that the three of them discovered that they had an awful lot in common. And Lillian and Norman Bethune developed a special relationship. I won't go so far as to say that it was necessarily romantic, but it was close and it was personal. When Lillian, Lillian was one of the people that Norman Bethune came to visit when, she, when he came to Toronto after returning from Spain. Then he goes to China and he sends a series of letters from China to Lillian saying, I want you to come with me, come with me to China. So there's room for speculation here. <laughs> there's room for speculation, certainly. And it's, it's noteworthy that she did not speak Chinese and she was not a nurse or have any other medical skills. So it was clearly for companionship of some form. And there's different kinds of companionship that exist between a man and a woman. A lot of people push me to infer it was romantic. We will not do that here. That's not that I'm not willing to make that inference. Let's go back to the Mac Paps. Uh, at the end of the day, what's your take? You're you're a, a man of your we'll talk about that in a second. You're a military man. Your approach here is military. I think it's one of the great aspects of the book. What's your take finally on the the, the legacy of the Mac Pap battalion? Was this a good unit or not? What's your take? There's a few caveats I need to put in place uh, before assessing the Mackenzie Papineau Battalion as as a unit, because it's very much an apples to oranges if we compare it to a unit that was, say, in the Canadian Expeditionary Force. Of the First World War. Of the First World War. This was not an organization that had the opportunity to go to the Salisbury Plains and to do a couple of months training to bring themselves up to the standard they needed to be to fight. This was a... they. They got off the train, they went to the Albacete bullring, they had the opportunity to fire a couple of rounds into the side of a hill, and then they were sent to the front. They developed some very impressive combat leaders over time. And you can watch certain members uh, over the course of the battalion's development who become very able company commanders. However, the casualty rate was was so high that if they started off as a cabo, as a corporal, and became a company commander, the odds of them surviving to do anything else was pretty low. Cecil Smith commanded a battalion for almost two full years, which makes him the longest-serving battalion commander in the International Brigades, from what we can tell. Certainly the longest-serving English-speaking battalion commander in the International Brigades. So I would say that they were as good as they possibly could be. Uh, As individuals, they were highly motivated, but as a group, they didn't have the benefit of training that allows a group of individuals to fight as one big team. They were outclassed. Relative to the nationalists who could operate as a team and had the benefit of 88mm German artillery, Panzer I tanks, and Stuka dive bombers, that's a, that's a tough fight to, to win. Edward Cecil Smith comes back to Canada. What happens to him after the war? Does he rejoin the Communist Party? What's his, what's his work? He immediately goes back to work for the Communist Party of Canada. He is the editor of uh, their of their newspaper, and it's the first time that he is publicly named as being on that editorial staff. He's involved with A.A. Uh, a. McLeod in expanding the influence of the Communist Party in the city of Toronto. And he's uh, noteworthy enough that the RCMP, who have been monitoring him very closely since the early 1930s, now assign an undercover RCMP officer to monitor him and McLeod and to get as close to them as they can. So he's being followed in the streets of Toronto, is he? 
Uh, he is being followed by a gentleman who he thinks is named Benson, but that's not his real name. His real name is Constable Trolov. And they are on the same planning committees and they work very closely together. And there's an extensive file of Constable Trolov's records of everything Cecil Smith is doing on a daily basis when he comes back from Spain. How does he live out his life? Well, the Second World War, uh, as it did for so many other people, changed the direction of his life. He thought that fighting Germany was the most important thing that Canada could do. Uh, he volunteered, he wrote to the Minister of National Defense and said, I will take the Mackenzie Papineau Battalion and we will go back to Europe. And their intention was not just to go to England, their intention was to go to Poland. Mm. He offered to take the Mackenzie Papineau Battalion to Poland to help the Polish people win that fight. It's important. I mean, he's still a Stalinist. He's going to follow Stalin. It's, it's not, I mean, he's not one of those communists who will renounce the, the faith because uh, the Nazis and the, um, the, the communists had made a, an agreement in 1938-39, the Molotov-Ribbentrop uh, agreement. He's not one of those. He stays with, with Stalin. He stays with Stalin in spite of that disagreement over the Molotov-Ribbentrop agreement. There's been some stuff written that, is, that turns out to be incorrect that said that was the moment he broke with the party. Right. It's not. It got him in a lot of trouble, certainly. He was, uh, he was certainly uh, in the doghouse, so to speak, with the Communist Party. But he was welcomed back, uh, and he continued to do work with the Communist mm -hmm. Party um, and the Canadian Seamen's Union, which was, which was a legitimate union. Indeed. But it was heavily infiltrated by members of the Communist Party of Canada. When does he die? He dies in the early 1960s. He's, he's quite young. He has... Uh, he has one stroke. He's living in Montreal. He has one stroke. Uh, he comes back to Toronto and goes to the Veterans Hospital, which he's entitled to because he served in the Canadian Army very briefly, but he did serve in the Canadian Army and he received an honorable discharge. I think that there was some collusion on the part of his commanding officer because the RCMP were pushing to have him kicked out for his political activities. Uh, but ultimately what got him kicked out was the fact that his eyesight was so bad. He had cataracts in both eyes and couldn't see six inches in front of his face without glasses. And what happens to Lillian? Lillian and Edward Cecil Smith uh, live out their lives very happily. Whatever the relationship between Lillian and uh, Norman Bethune was didn't seem to make a difference. Uh, Cecil Smith definitely knew about their relationship, whatever it was. Uh, the letters were were kept in her personal collection. It wasn't a secret. Now, again, I come back to his parents. His parents never left China, did they? No, they tried to. They tried to. When the Japanese invaded China, um, they tried to flee along the Burma Road. And George Cecil Smith, who was, uh, who was far along in age at that point, mm -hmm. he, he didn't make it. He had a heart attack and died. And we're not really sure what happened to, uh, to Ida White on her way out. His sister was interned in Shanghai by the Japanese, and she lived out the rest of the war in the internment camps, and then she returned to England after the war. Let's talk about you for a second. You're working now at the Canadian Forces College here in Toronto. You've trained at the Royal Military College, and you served with the Princess Patricia Canadian Light Infantry. Uh, you served in Afghanistan twice in 2008 and 2011. Uh, you've now finished law school at the University of Toronto. You served as a, uh, you served as a lawyer. You, you practiced as a lawyer. You still serve in the reserves. What prompted you to write this book? I was attracted to the idea of motivation because for me, uh, 
combat motivation is kind of two parts. Part one is what gets you into uniform? What makes you sign on the dotted line? And two, what makes you not run away when things get very difficult? So studying Edward Cecil Smith's life was uh, was very interesting from that point of view, because if you take away these concepts of fighting for the flag, fighting for king and country, and you still go, then then what is your motivation? Studying that. And also, once they were there, just given the general lack of conventional military discipline within the international brigades, it, it becomes very interesting to see what made people stand and fight and to volunteer to go back to the front time and time again. Risking their lives knowing that the casualty rate is not encouraging. Yes. Uh, <laughs> terrible, terrible uh, odds uh, of your survival, mm. uh, not particularly good medical care, uh, no assumption that if you make it out alive, your country will take care of you. None of that. Just complete absence of that. Now, I've got to finish off by asking you the classic Champlain Society question, um, because we're all about preserving the documented history of Canada. You used a lot of new sources in this book. What were they? What, where did you find this stuff? I would say that um, if I would group the, the key resources I tapped into this into two categories. The first is missionary records. Uh, missionaries keep wonderful records. <laughs> and their contemporary magazines like China's Millions uh, are just wonderful insight into what life was like for the missionaries uh, and the uh, cultural conflicts that existed between missionaries and the Chinese mm -hmm. people in rural China. Uh, the second is communist newspapers, and there are a lot. There's The Worker, The Daily Clarion, The Canadian Labor Defender, Soviet Russia Today. There's a whole slew of them, and they're uh, they're largely untapped resources. Surprisingly. Surprisingly, yeah. And you can't, you have to use them carefully. You can't just read them and, to be blunt, trust them. Uh, because there's an angle, there's a motivation. But if you take what's in them and line it up with contemporary records at the source, you can draw some pretty good inferences. Uh, the third is RCMP records. Uh, I did a lot of access to information requests. Edward Cecil Smith had a 300-page uh, RCMP file, which was extremely helpful. And uh, lastly, the Russian state archives in, in Moscow. The International Brigade's records were kept in they were kept at their headquarters in Albacete for most of the war in Spain, but they were evacuated to Moscow. And are they in English? What language are they in? They're in English, French, Spanish, uh, a whole host of languages. They are digitized. Uh, so if you turn on the translation function on Google Chrome, not to not to plug anyone, <laughs> but it, you can you can find your way through it. They're not searchable. It takes a lot of time, but you can find some some real real gems. Well, I think it uh, it adds to the many strengths of your book. I learned a lot in reading this book, and it's very skillful in its scholarship, and your narrative is compelling, and it's a it's a fascinating story and a, a new character that you've added to the uh, Canadian pageant. Thank you, Patrice. Tyler Wenzel is the author of Not for King or Country, Edward Cecil Smith, The Communist Party of Canada, and the Spanish Civil War. It's published by the University of Toronto Press. You've been listening to Witness to Yesterday, the Champlain Society podcast on Canadian history. Please visit our website at champlainsociety.ca where you'll find more about what the Society does, including its publications, its blogs, and more about these podcasts. There's even a place to become a member and a sustainer of the Society if you like these conversations with historians about Canada's past. If you like this stuff, please let people know by using whatever social media you use. It would help spread the message and we'd be really proud of your support. This podcast is made possible by the members of the Champlain Society. Thank you. Thanks also to the Hudson's Bay Company History Foundation and the L.R. Wilson Institute for History at McMaster University for their support of these recordings. 
My name is Patrice Dutille. This interview was recorded in the Allen Slate Radio Institute at Ryerson University on February 6th, 2020, and produced by Michael Smith. Thank you, everybody. We'll see you next time.